welcome to episode 19. As always, much appreciated for taking the time to give this podcast a go. We are going to keep revisiting films from the past and present, some of them well-loved, some of them maybe not so much, and if you'll pardon me, I would like to quote actress Lauren Bacall, as is often the case, because as she once said, it's not an old movie if you haven't seen it. And that's particularly fitting for today's two films, at least on my end, because both movies came out before my time, and one of them, full disclosure here, one of them, Bullet, I only saw recently for the first time in preparation for this episode, so we'll get into all of that in a little bit. We're going to be diving into some fun behind-the-scenes facts, as we usually do. I'll bring some classic dialogue to the table, like this tough guy talk from The French Connection, when Jimmy Doyle, Popeye, Popeye Doyle, he apprehends a small-time drug pusher and yells at him, You put a shiv in my partner, you know what that means? All went along, I gotta listen to him gripe about his bowling scores. Might not make any sense out of context, but give the movie a go, and it'll all fall into place, I guarantee it. I am your movie-loving host, Frank, and this is Silver Screeners. So, let's get today's episode up and running. We're gonna go back in time to an era when... It became the in thing to go against everything that you had ever been taught was right, to dabble a little bit in what you were always taught was wrong. Personal freedoms, political, social, sexual, they became more and more of a thing in the mid to late 60s going into the 70s. I'm talking the Vietnam years, I'm talking the, you know, the modern civil rights movement, hippie communes, peace matches, drug use. Becoming a little seasoned, or maybe in some cases just out and out becoming a frickin' spice rack. Anything that was breaking away from the norm, questioning authority, defying authority. At this point, the rebelliousness of James Dean was looking laughably tame back in the 50s compared to what the likes of Warren Beatty and Faye Dunaway were doing in Bonnie and Clyde. In fact, if you go back to episode 3, I talked a little bit about this then when setting the stage for that episode's film, The Graduate, which came out in 1967. But as the war in Vietnam went on, the number of assassinations of public leaders mounted, and clashes between us versus them, you know, the pop culture was beginning to reflect this shift in cultural norms and what was considered decent. The twin beds for example, of Ricky and Lucy Ricardo on the 1950s comedy series I Love Lucy. Married couples could not be seen in the same bed on television. That made way for the single queen-sized bed of Fred and Wilma Flintstone and Herman and Lily Munster. There was this eventual shift in the film industry that was struggling to keep up with these changing times, but as sometimes is the case, the movies were a little slow to catch up. You know, you take a look at the first half of the 1960s, you know, the midway point through the decade, the Best Picture Oscar was still going to the likes of My Fair Lady in 1964, with Audrey Hepburn singing about lots of chocolate to eat. 1965, Best Picture Oscar went to The Sound of Music, where you have Hollywood's Cheese Queen, that's Julie Andrews, singing about tea with jam and bread. These movies are not my bag, so I cannot explain, really, the food fixation in these lyrics. This Again, this was all before my time, so I'm operating solely on research here. But by 1967, you have the taboo shattering in the heat of the night, which I'll be covering in a future episode. And then two years later, 1969, you had the taboo obliterating 
Midnight Cowboy, which to this day remains the only X-rated movie to get Best Picture. So basically, new kinds of films were getting made, and the studios were losing control for a while as more and more directors, the first generation of directors that went to film school, they began to call more and more of the shots, literally and figuratively the shots. And this era in filmmaking came to be known as the new Hollywood. So in the midst of all of this came this episode's two featured films, 1968's Bullet and three years later, 1971's The French Connection. And I wanted to give this little historical backdrop just to, just to set the stage, if you will. Both of these movies can be classified, I guess you could say it's sort of a hybrid of action, thriller, and drama. Both have adrenaline-pumping car chase sequences. Needless to say, that's a great showcase for editors and cinematographers, sound technicians, and even the directors and the actors. So you have two car chase sequences. You have two protagonists. Both of them are tough-talking city cops. They break established rules. They play by their own rules. They Both films won the Best Editing Oscar, which says something about their visual style. So what we'll do has become the format of this show. First, a spoiler-free plot setup of both, then a friendly spoiler alert as we go into the top 10 countdown of behind-the-scenes fun facts, and then the final segment, the trivia question, as well as the trivia results from last episode, the online poll results, the shout-outs and acknowledgements to you and all of your feedback and contributions, and a lot of you, your own creative endeavors. So, let's dive right in first to 1968's Bullet. Bullet, directed by Peter Yates, based on the book Mute Witness by Robert L. Pike. This is a movie that's, I will call it very much a product of its time. It was released in the U.S. and Canada on October 17th, 1968, the music, the camera work, especially the use of zoom-ins and zoom-outs at different speeds, slow zooms, fast zooms, that all very much reflects the styles and the trends of the late 60s, but that's all the visuals and the audio. Bullet is also a product of its time in the way that the characters work. The main character, Lieutenant Frank Bullet, played by Steve McQueen, He's on the homicide squad of the San Francisco Police Department. He's what has become the archetype of the tough guy who does things his own way. It's a pretty tried and true formula by today's standards. But again, you have to keep in mind the era and the kinds of movies that were being made up to this point. Basically, he has the attitude of to hell with protocols and regulations especially if those protocols and regulations just get in the way of getting the job done. The film itself made an urban jungle, and that's a quote. <laughs> um, the film itself made an urban jungle out of San Francisco. That's a quote from Jonathan Kirshner's book, a fantastic book called Hollywood's Last Golden Age, Politics, Society, and the 70s Film in America. I know that's a mouthful. <laughs> Hollywood's Last Golden Age by Jonathan Kirshner. And I'll quote directly from page 127. He says of Bullet, quote, It anticipates a number of themes that would develop more fully in the following years. A movie best known for a car chase, the famous sequence in The French Connection, was expressly designed to top it. Bullet is steeped in what would become the visual motifs of the new Hollywood. The visual motifs. 
saturated darkness, handheld cameras, all location shooting, and documentary style. End quote. So I mentioned Steve McQueen already. He stars as this rogue cop. And as the movie begins, the opening shot is of Chicago at nighttime. And the camera pans from right to left. We're seeing the city skyscrapers. And then it zooms in part of the way to a particular building. And then you have a jarring musical cue that coincides with a quick cut to it's a reflection. And at first you think you're looking into a surveillance mirror or a security camera. But it turns out that it's the black surface of a suspended light inside of an office or a workroom inside this building. The camera zooms out and we're treated to some interior shots of the room that are intercut with this group of shady-looking characters, these guys who look suspicious. They seem like they're not supposed to be there, and they're not. <laughs> There's gunfire, a smashing of glass, and forced entry. That's pretty much the tip-off. It turns out that there are two brothers named Johnny and Pete Ross. Both of them are involved with the mob. Johnny has stolen money from the mob, $2 million to be exact, but he does manage to escape with his life with the help of his brother Pete. So at that point, the action then shifts to San Francisco for the rest of the film. It's the following afternoon. It's now a Saturday afternoon, and we have a character named Sergeant Don Delgetti. He goes to the apartment of Lieutenant Frank Bullitt, Steve McQueen. He wakes him up, and Bullitt is cranky, he's irritable, he's exhausted. He's just come off of a long, difficult night out in the beat. And together, they go to the mansion of a politician named Walter Chalmers, played by Robert Vaughn. And basically, Chalmers tells Bullitt that Johnny Ross is planning to turn state's evidence that Monday morning in court, and he's going to testify against the mob, and he needs protection in the meantime. So what Chalmers is trying to do is to, is to get Bullitt to agree, basically, to, to be his bodyguard for the weekend. And Chalmers is invested in this for his own political gain, so it's a confidential assignment. You know, it's supposed to be kept very much on the, on the down low. So basically, protect this mobster-turned-informant. And so Bullitt begrudgingly agrees, and so he and Del Getty and a third sergeant named Stanton the three of them all begin to keep an eye on Johnny Ross at a hotel, and the three of them all agree to watch him in shifts. And honestly, that's where I do have to stop with the premise. That's I didn't get as far into the premise as I sometimes do, because the way that the story is structured, if the setup is to stay spoiler-free, if you want the chance to give this a go, you know, I want you to have every chance to relish every crazy direction that this story takes. So, now is the time to swing in the other direction towards today's other featured film, one that got five Academy Award wins, including Best Picture of 1971, Best Director for William Friedkin, Best Editing, Best Leading Actor for Gene Hackman, and Best Adapted Screenplay for Ernest Tidyman. And it also got, on top of those five wins, three additional nominations, Best Sound, Cinematography, and Best Supporting Actor. For Roy Scheider. And Roy Scheider, he'd go on to leading roles in the first two Jaws movies, uh, 1979's All That Jazz, 1983's Blue Thunder. He didn't win supporting actor. It went to Ben Johnson for The Last Picture Show. But here now is 1971's The French Connection, which is based, like Bullet, on a book of the same name. This book was written by Robin Moore. 
And the difference with the French Connection is that it's based on the true story of one of the biggest drug busts in U.S. history. It was shot over five weeks in the winter of 1970 to 71. The director's approach, William Friedkin, his approach was to keep this emotionally distant, to avoid any sense of sentimentality, even though Gene Hackman tried like hell to bring a sense of hum humanity to his character, but Friedkin was not having it. He, he opted not to block a lot of the scenes, interestingly enough. He just told the camera operators to follow the actors. He wanted a very natural and organic and authentic feel, almost documentary-like, which makes sense because Friedkin really, his career, he got started making documentaries. So it's not as if he was a stranger to cinema verite, and it works well for a cynical, fact-based crime thriller shot in New York City. So Gene Hackman, he plays Brooklyn cop Jimmy Doyle, nicknamed Popeye. He's edgy, and like Frank Bullitt, he is a play-by-your-own-rules kind of guy. Uh, he works in the narcotics division, and he has zero tolerance for drug pushes, and he's willing to do whatever it takes to bring them down. He's got a short fuse, he's surly, he drinks too much, he does say and do some pretty racist things. Uh, he has a partner named Sal Russo, played by Roy Scheider. Popeye nicknames him Cloudy, so you have Popeye and Cloudy. The opening shot of the French Connection, the establishing shot, is of Marseille, France. And there's a zoom out that gives you a visual of the surrounding city area. And then you see a man, turns out he's a plainclothes policeman, and he's eating what appears to be a piece of pizza. It could be fried dough, maybe a calzone. Not that it matters, but, you know, we like to get these things accurate. Anyway, he's, he's observing two other men. They're having a conversation in these hushed tones. We then cut to a sidewalk cafe, and there's a zoom in on this same plainclothes policeman. He's sitting at a table, still watching from a distance. And then for the first of many times throughout this entire film, there's a handheld tracking shot. And in this case, it's a point-of-view low angle of laundry hanging from clotheslines in an alleyway. And we're experiencing this moment from the law enforcement's perspective, the handheld shots. They continue as he walks through this alleyway. He enters the vestibule of a building. Presumably, it's a hotel, maybe his residence. He's holding a loaf of French bread, and he's checking his mailbox. So you get the impression that he's now off-duty. Suddenly, he looks up and he faces the barrel of a shotgun, or, or a pistol. He pulls the trigger, and the plainclothes policeman, he's shot right in the face, and he falls to the ground, and everything that I've just said is all in the first three and a half minutes into the film. And then it was at this point when the action shifts to Brooklyn, New York. We see two young boys, kids, they're talking to a sidewalk Santa. Sidewalk Santa is Gene Hack. well, it's Popeye Doyle. Uh, he is, his partner, Cloudy, enters a bar across the street. He grabs a patron, shoves him into a phone booth, and this becomes a repeat occurrence throughout the film, this kind of, this kind of physical aggression. Uh, raiding a bar where drug pushers and dealers are hanging out, making them go inside the phone booth, like literally saying to them, get into the phone booth, hands on the, hands on the inside walls. So a second guy flees the bar. He takes off outside, runs down the street, Popeye and Cloudy, they, they take off. They're in hot pursuit. They chase him down. They knock him to the ground. They kick him and they drag him away. All the while, they're shouting at him, who's your man and who's your connection? So basically, these are two Brooklyn-based narcotics de uh, detectives 
who are fiercely dedicated to taking down drug dealers. Popeye especially wants to see them crash and burn. And the next thing that happens is they're both at some kind of a bar or a nightclub of some sort. They're talking and kind of like people watching and observing. Popeye gets all suspicious of a few people. One guy in particular at a table. The guy looks a little questionable, a little suspect. So Popeye's going with his gut, basically. And he correctly guesses that it's a drug deal that's happening, that he's observing from a distance. Turns out the guy he's studying is what's called, as Popeye calls him, quote, a big spender, meaning that he's out of his element with everyone else at the table. You know, he's not, you know, he's, he's not someone with a lot of influence or someone with a lot of money, but he spends the money that he does get from the drug deals. He's, you know, he's, he's part of a drug syndicate. And this big spender his ni- and his 19-year-old wife they're identified as Sal and Angie Boca, and they own a diner, a luncheonette counter in Brooklyn. And Popeye and Cloudy, they, they tail Sal and Angie all night. They watch them drop off a suitcase in Little Italy. They watch them switch cars afterwards. As it turns out, Sal and Angie, they have criminal records as well. So Popeye and Cloudy, they ask for permission to basically to surveil this uh, the couple. They're convinced that they're part of a drug syndicate with connections to an organized drug smuggling ring located in, guess where, France, the French Connection. And I will stop there with the setup, but for what it's worth, this is a movie that depicts cat and mouse games, wiretapping, mob informants, cutting-edge camera work, that it really captures the zeitgeist of the jaded cynicism of the time. So as for the premise and setup of The French Connection, that's all you're getting. It was released in New York on October 7th, 1971, and it became a huge hit and a five-time Oscar winner. But if you're thirsty for more, there is more. So at this point, I always say proceed with the knowledge that details from both movies, including potential plot spoilers and the endings, they're going to come fast and furious, so spoiler alert now. So go ahead and hit pause if you want to go back and watch either movie. Please be sure to come back and finish listening for the full effect of the top 10 behind-the-scenes fun facts. First up, Bullet. And we'll go in order of release. So we'll do Bullet first and then the French Connection. So, number 10, director Peter Yates. This was his first film out of England, and it was his first in the U.S. Steve McQueen had seen his 1967 British film, Robbery, about a group of criminals planning to rob the Royal Mail train on the Glasgow-London route. It includes a car chase sequence throughout London, and Steve McQueen, a lover of cars, he liked the style of robbery, and he knew that he wanted Yates for Bullet. So Yates actually, by the way, worked for a car company at one point called HWM. Number nine, it was originally going to be set in Los Angeles. The producer of the film, uh, his name was Phil D'Antona, and the director, Yates, they both agreed that if they shot the movie outside of Los Angeles, then there would be a lot less micromanaging, a lot less breathing down their necks, more freedom if they were elsewhere. Almost all of the locations in Los Angeles that Yates thought were good had already been used in a lot of television cop shows, and so he was looking for something a little different. Number eight, the famous car chase sequence. 
Steve McQueen, he drives a Ford Mustang GT, and that car became legendary. And in spite of his efforts, McQueen did not manage to get the vehicle for his private collection of cars and motorcycles that he was famous for. But he did have the pleasure of driving it for the sequence. His head was visible by the driver's side window, which was kept open as much as possible to prove that it was not necessarily a stuntman in every single shot. But still, according to Jalopnik.com, Steve McQueen only drove about 10% of the entire sequence. Number seven, according to CNN Business, the green Ford Mustang GT, it sold at auction for $3.7 million at a collector car auction in Kissimmee, Florida in early 2020. The buyer's identity has been kept confidential, I can understand why, but back in 1974, there was a guy who bought the car after seeing an ad for it in Road and Track magazine. He bought it in 1974 for $3,500. This guy's name is Robert Kiernan, and it became the family car. Shopping trips, bringing the kids to and from school, that kind of thing. And to piggyback on what I said previously about Steve McQueen's failed attempts to buy the car for himself, for his collection... He tried to buy it from this Robert Kiernan a few times, but Kiernan never sold it to him. According to Kiernan's son, Sean, Sean spoke to CNN, and he said, quote, This wasn't like one of three cars that my dad had. This was it. McQueen's in California. My mom and dad were in Jersey, so, I mean, the logistics alone would have been a pain. And then beyond that, leave my mom without a car. End quote. I can't help but wonder if there's more to the story than just that. If you have the chance to sell a car to Steve McQueen several times if, if Steve McQueen comes knocking on your door more than once. Number six, Bill Hickman. Bill Hickman, he plays the evil henchman, the bad guy named Phil in the car chase sequence. He's the one being chased by McQueen. He drives a Dodge Charger, and he did pretty well with it because he got stunt work in some more films after Bullet, including stunt driving a brown 1970 Pontiac for Gene Hackman in the chase sequence from The French Connection. Number five, think about Steve McQueen's character's name, Bullet. Ironically, he does not use his gun at all throughout the film, not until the climactic moment at the San Francisco International Airport. Number four, according to ClassicMovieHub.com, Yates wanted speeds of about 75 to 80 miles an hour in the, the chase sequence, but they went above and beyond in the final edit because the cars, including the ones with the cameras inside, they reached upwards of 110 miles an hour. Filming this sequence lasted three weeks, and they were denied permission to film on the Golden Gate Bridge. That would have been killer. Number three. According to, again, ClassicMovieHub.com, there is a casting could have been. The book and the first draft of the screenplay has Frank Bullitt as an older character named Clancy, a Boston policeman who never solved a case and had a thing for eating a lot of ice cream. And when the studio bought the rights to the book, the original thought was to have Bullitt played by Spencer Tracy. But with Tracy's 1967 passing, plans changed a wee little bit. The car chase sequence was then added. The setting was changed from Boston to San Francisco. Steve McQueen stepped into the title role. Number two. According to the director, Yates, on the DVD commentary, Steve McQueen, quote, 
had certain fears about playing a policeman. Police in the U.S., especially in California at the time, were not that popular. McQueen felt that maybe he shouldn't be playing a policeman, and we managed to persuade him how much good he could do by showing the human side of it. They're people who really believe in what they're doing. It really did work. It helped a lot in the sort of a whole feeling of making people a bit more sympathetic, end quote. In fact, his girlfriend in the film, played by Jacqueline Bissett, once she realizes more what his daily life actually entails in terms of the, in terms of the violence he sees and the threats to his safety and, you know, protecting public safety, she tells him how she doesn't know him the way she thought she did, how callous he is on the job, how he doesn't seem to let the violence bother him. And this bothers her. And after the bloody climax at the airport, notice how he sees the bad guy lying dead on the ground, and he also sees how upset all of the innocent bystanders, including children, how they all are. They just witnessed a shootout. So he takes his jacket, and he covers the dead criminal's face, goes home. He sees her asleep in bed. He goes into the bathroom and turns on the water, stares, stares at himself in the mirror. He knows that he has screwed up, screwed up royally. All of the witnesses, including the one he's supposed to bring in alive, they are now killed, and any chance of nabbing the higher-ups in the mob, those chances are now virtually nil. And just before the end credits begin, the final shot is a close-up of his holstered gun and unused rounds. And number one, a sign of the changing times. The only profanity in the film was the use of the word bullshit. According to Yates, again, the DVD commentary, he said, quote, it was the only word that summed up exactly how Bullet would feel about the Robert Vaughn character, and it got past the censor. In fact, it got taken out because we started up in the Radio City Music Hall where it was first shown. It was a complete change of attitude for them, so they had it taken out. But I was sitting at a screening in San Francisco, and the head of Warner's leaned forward and tapped me in the shoulder and said, put it back, end quote. So there you have production notes and some of the backstory of Bullet. But let's give equal time to the French Connection, shall we? So, this is the film that very effectively captures the, the dingy feel of early 70s Brooklyn. It takes it to the hilt. Director William Friedkin, he very much, uh, he very much revered directors like Alfred Hitchcock, Orson Welles, and he was especially a big fan of some of the biggest names of the French New Wave cinema of the 60s. I'm talking... Francois Truffaut, I'm talking Jean-Luc Goddard, and in my mind anyway, filmmaking geniuses just like that. So, let's move into the top 10 of The French Connection. Number 10, New York Police Department detectives Eddie Egan and Sonny Grasso. These are two real-life guys, Eddie Egan, Sonny Grasso, in the early 1960s. They, the story is based on them and a drug bust that they were involved in, the one that they took down. And the two of them, they remained close to the story throughout its development. Director William Friedkin, he kept them on set almost every day. He had them there as technical advisors. He even cast them both in the film. Eddie Egan, the basis for Gene Hackman's character, Popeye Doyle, he plays Doyle and Russo's supervisor, so he basically had the chance to play his own boss in the movie. And Sonny Grasso was the basis for Cloudy. 
he plays Clyde Klein, a federal agent. And number nine, Robin Moore's book, The French Connection. It eventually found its way into the hands of Philip D'Antona, a producer who was fresh off the success of his first feature film, Bullet. He loved it. He wanted the right director to make the gritty kind of drama that he had in mind, and for that, he turned to William Friedkin, who, as has already been said, had a background in documentary filmmaking. Friedkin had one problem, though. <laughs> he could not finish the book. He said that he tried. He just could not get through it. He could not follow it. Number eight. A casting could have been. The producer, DeAntony, he wanted Gene Hackman, who at the time was probably most known for Bonnie and Clyde, I Never Sang for My Father, movies like that. Friedkin was not sold on the idea of Gene Hackman. He recalls, quote, I instantly thought it was a bad idea, end quote. So Friedkin agreed to have lunch with Gene Hackman, and even though Hackman recalled the lunch being cordial and pleasant and friendly, Friedkin later said that he almost fell asleep. He did not find Gene Hackman to be engaging at all. His preference for the character of Popeye? Jackie Gleason. Television comedian Jackie Gleason. But Gleason's last film at Fox was a financial flop, so the studio was not interested in casting him. And they went through a few more options that didn't work out, until finally, DeAntony issued an ultimatum to Friedkin. Either cast Gene Hackman or no movie. Number seven, for the French drug kingpin, Friedkin said, quote, let's get that French guy that was in Belle de Jour. What the hell's his name? End quote. Friedkin was told that the actor he was thinking of was Fernando Rey, and that Rey was available. He signed him, sight unseen, then he went to pick him up at the airport when he arrived in New York. And when Friedkin and Ray met face to face, Friedkin realized that he was not the actor he had been thinking of. Friedkin had really wanted Francisco Rabal. So instead, here he is facing Fernando Ray, who would not shave his goatee, and also said that as a Spanish actor, his French was not particularly good. Number six, Gene Hackman found Eddie Egan, the basis for Popeye, difficult. He called the veteran cop, quote, insensitive, end quote. Hackman's discomfort only increased when he read the script and found that he would have to use a number of racial slurs in his dialogue. And he was not happy with this. He went to Friedkin. He shared his concerns with him. He said to him, you know, I, I, don't, I don't want to say this kind of stuff. You know, is it really necessary? Is it important to the story? And Friedkin's response was, it's part of the movie and you have to say it. And so Hackman later recalled, I just had to kind of suck it up and do the dialogue. And according to his co-star, Roy Scheider, Hackman's reservations also stemmed in part from his, his quest to make Popeye more of a relatable character. You know, it was previously mentioned he wanted to bring some humanity to him, but Friedkin did not want that. He saw him as a, a rough and a brash cop who was willing to do whatever it took. And Roy Scheider said, quote, Gene kept trying to find a way to make the guy human. And Billy kept saying, no, he's, a, he's an SOB. He's no good, end quote. Number five, the chase sequence in The French Connection. That began when the producer, D'Antoni, demanded that whatever chase they came up with be better than the one in his previous film, Bullet. His idea was, instead of two cars like we had in Bullet, this time, let's use a car and a train. 
And to get permission to use the correct train, Friedkin gave a New York transit official $40,000 and a one-way ticket to Jamaica because the official was certain that he was going to lose his job for allowing them to shoot the sequence. The rest of the chase, including all of the, all of the work under, uh, with the car under the train tracks, that was all shot without permits. Friedkin used assistant directors, the help of off-duty police officers, to, to clear out traffic on the blocks ahead of the shoot, but they were not always entirely successful, and at least one of the crashes in the finished film was a real accident, not a planned stunt. Number four. I have a quote here from Gene Hackman. We had blocked off a three-block area so we could really go fast down the street. There was a camera car next to my car as I was driving. What they hadn't figured was that people had their cars packed in their driveway or whatever. A guy gets out of his, leaves his house, and gets in his car to go to work. And he drives right into our shot. And he nailed me right in the side and put me into the steel pillar. And that was car number one. Hackman went on to say, I think we ended up using three cars eventually. We crashed a lot of cars. As they got me out of the car, it was pretty crushed. And I looked over, and I saw Bill Hickman, our stuntman, and he was on the phone already ordering another car. End quote. Number three. If you recall, there is, during the chase sequence, a woman with a baby carriage. She was an actress, a stunt woman by the name of Laura Mitchell. And she was interviewed in later years, and she laughed as she recalled, quote, that scared the daylights out of me because I didn't trust Gene Hackman, because I knew that he had crashed into one of those poles, you know, below the L. I knew he had just crashed the car and they had to find a new car for him. So when they told me that Gene Hackman was coming at me, I was nervous. I was more nervous about Gene Hackman driving the car than I was with my stunt, to tell you the truth. End quote. Number two, during the film's post-production, the promotional department at Fox, they said that they wanted to have a new title. Alternate titles included Doyle and Popeye to play up the tough cop at the center of the story. Thankfully, they did not go in that direction. And number one, the ending of The French Connection. A lot of the drug dealers are captured. Doyle is not satisfied with that. He pursues Chanier, the henchman, the the you know, the main bad guy, into an abandoned building. He's determined to catch him. And he's so jumpy that he nearly fires on him when he sees him. And then he sees a shadowy figure in the distance. And Popeye fires several times. And he realizes that the man was not Chanier, but one of the two federal agents helping him out with the case. He is still unfazed and still determined. He heads off into the darkness, still in pursuit, and we hear a single gunshot ring out. End of film. And the title cards at the end of the film tell us that Popeye did not actually catch Chanier, so who was he shooting at? And according to director William Friedkin, the ending is deliberately ambiguous. Quote, People have asked me through the years what that gunshot meant. It doesn't mean anything, although it might. It might mean that this guy is so over the top at that point that he's shooting at shadows, end quote. And there you go. The countdown of fun facts for the French Connection. We are now going to swivel towards the final segment of today's show, Trivia Time. And to reiterate, doesn't matter what episode you're listening to, no matter how far back or how recent, whether it's the latest or the earliest, 
Answer any trivia question at any time. You will get a personalized meme and a shout out the next episode no matter what, so don't be shy. And last time, we looked at Awakenings and Mrs. Doubtfire. And the trivia question was, name the film that got Robin Williams his Academy Award win. And the answer is... 1997's Goodwill Hunting, which also got the Best Original Screenplay for Ben Affleck and Matt Damon. So Robin Williams got Best Supporting Actor Prize for his portrayal of Sean McGuire, the therapist of Matt Damon's character. So I do have here some shoutouts and some personalized memes that I will be sending out. Mary C., great to have you again. Very much appreciated. Thank you for listening, and thank you for all of your interactions on the Facebook page, Silver Screeners. You always have great thoughts, great feedback. I always love reading them. Thank you. Edward R., also a member of Silver Screeners on Facebook. You've brought a lot of your thoughts to the table in the past as well, so thank you for tuning in. Great to hear from you. New listener, Eric Malcolm on Twitter, who said that, and I quote, Awakenings was his favorite performances of both Robin Williams and Robert De Niro, that Robin Williams brought humanity and heart to it. And Eric Malcolm has a blog of his own. It's called Tacos and Dinosaurs. So go ahead and check that out. And rewatch, relive, repeat podcast in New Zealand. This is a great movie-themed podcast. Uh, We've been listening to each other's episodes. Thank you. Thank you to the both of you. Um, You said that Robin Williams was a brilliant human and sorely missed. So go ahead and give rewatch, relive, repeat podcast. Give it a listen. You'll find them on Twitter. You'll find them on Instagram. Actually, Facebook too, if I'm not mistaken. So, everybody, congratulations. Thank you very much. Keep your eyes open for those memes coming your way. And I also want to give a shout-out to Judith R. You sent in a great photo of Jimmy Stewart and his father at their hardware store. And that's a photo that was found on a Facebook page called Vintage History. So, I began following it, so check that one out as well. Thank you, Judith. And for those of you who are fans of classic TV comedy, Bernard C., he sent a link to a new biography of television comedian and movie comedian Don Knotts. He's most famous for The Andy Griffith Show and Three's Company. And Don Knotts' daughter, uh, Karen, Karen Knotts, she has a new biography of her father coming out in late September, apparently, called Tied Up in Knots, My Dad and Me. And that's perfect timing, that Bernard, that you told me about it this week, because, after all, he was on Three's Company. Who else was on Three's Company? Norman Fell, who played Mr. Ropa. What else was Norman Fell in? Norman Fellas and Bullet, so <laughs> it all comes full circle. And one other thing, and I meant to mention this last episode, so my deep apologies to Alicia W. This was really exciting to see. Uh, Alicia asked a really good question about movie recommendations for the fall season. Halloween, Thanksgiving-themed films, stuff that's, you know, seasonal and holiday-appropriate. So I say exciting because the fall is my favorite time of the year. So, Alicia, you've come to the right place. There are a lot of suggestions. They'll be released incrementally over the next batch of episodes. Hopefully they'll appeal to a variety of different tastes. So there'll be some lists and some future episodes will feature a lot of the titles. And with August winding down, I don't know about you, but I'm really getting into fall mode right now. So recommendations coming your way. And here is this week's trivia question. Gene Hackman, as mentioned, got his Best Leading Actor Oscar for The French Connection in early 1972. He would go on to win a second Academy Award, this one in the Supporting Actor category, for what 1992 Clint Eastwood film that, like The French Connection, also won Best Picture? 
So send your answers on over. As always, if you have any follow-up questions or any comments, any thoughts of your own that you want to share on Bullet or The French Connection, on Steve McQueen, Jacqueline Bassett, Gene Hackman, Roy Scheider, William Friedkin, Peter Yates, hit me up on my socials, FilmBuff1974 on Twitter, The Film Group Silver Screen is on Facebook, Frank Mendoza 1974 on Instagram, or you can email frankmendoza at yahoo.com. And thank you to everybody who voted in this week's poll. The poll asked which of this episode's two featured films was more your speed, if you'll, you'll forgive the semi-intentional pun. <laughs> After tallying up everything from Facebook and Twitter and Instagram, it looks like the flick that came out on top is The French Connection by a single vote. As for the comments and the feedback that came in over the socials, Greg S. very simply but very effectively says, bullet, hands down. Three magic words. And Edward Ab, he says, nothing beats the car chase in bullet, but I did get scared in the chase sequence of the French Connection under the L train. Just think that these stunts were done without computer graphic enhancement. That's just it. <laughs> because all of this was very much authentic. So thank you to everyone for your contributions, for your interaction. Let's keep it going. And that wraps up episode 19. Thank you again for listening. Be sure to hit that subscribe button if you haven't already. And if you could take a second to give this show a rating on Apple or iTunes or whatever platform you're listening to your podcasts from, that really does help to increase the show's visibility and viability. Helps with the algorithms. If you want to leave a quick review of Silver Screeners, that would be great as well. Thank you, as always, for joining. Rock on. I'm Frank. And until next time, keep on screening. I'll see you.